are here, it is the last bridge of the semester, which is just kind of crazy. All of you probably have, what, two weeks left of school. Finals have started for some of you, most of you, online classes. It's a real thing. You're in it. Uh, so we are finishing the book of Acts. No, uh, we're not finishing the book of Acts. We are finishing our sermon series on the book of Acts. Jo uh, open your Bible to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we started uh, with Jesus ascending to be with the Father and uh, giving power to the apostles through the Spirit, and he gives them uh, really just this, this command uh, to go out to all nations, starting in Jerusalem and, and then to the ends of the earth with the gospel, that that is the mission uh, that, that really started this, the body of believers continuing on uh, from the believers that would be of, of Israel and continuing on into that. And now we are sharing in that exact same command of Acts 1-8 that started there in Jerusalem in that upper room when the Spirit came on them and they began to share and proclaim the mighty works of God. And here we are, 2021, about to be in 2022, that exact same gospel we continue to proclaim, we continue to believe and live out, and it is still spreading to the ends of the earth, to Denton, Texas. And if, man, if there's one word that you could probably put on the book of Acts, it, that's, that's not even fair. So I'm going to put a few. One, I mean, the power of God through the Holy Spirit is, is absolutely one of the big themes of the book of Acts. Another one would be growth. I mean, this church just begins to grow and grow and grow and grow, and it grows through the preaching of the word. If you look at the end of Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So we're going to persevere to the end, no matter what persecution we face, no matter what problems we experience, we are going to keep right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. What is the result? Chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, the result of the preaching of the gospel is that there are continual growth and increasing in disciples. And the church grew and grew and grew and grew. That's the first time disciples is used in the book of Acts. Luke uses it elsewhere. Uh, the word mathetes really means learner, an apprentice, someone that would follow. And a lot of times for them, like a disciple of Jesus is saying, I'm going to follow Jesus around. But now that Jesus is gone, they're still using this term for disciples in the church because now you are, you are following the teaching, the beliefs, and, and really the movement of the Spirit of God. They are disciples. They are learners. And they continue to grow and grow and grow. And as this happens, as exciting as increase is, we, we could talk about that in this room. Maybe if you're new with us, this is your first, uh, maybe even first time, but Really, this fall, if this is the first time you jumped in, I mean, we probably had like 50 or 60 on average that showed up, uh, and now we're triple digits every single Tuesday night, and, and we are growing. There is an increase with that, and, and one of the, the, the terms that I've been using often is, is growing pains. There are growing pains that happen uh, when things grow. 
that happens in the, in the body, right? Like as, as kids, like hip growth spurts, their knees, their joints, all these different things can start to hurt because they're growing and they're like, I don't even know if my body can support this. And, and that can happen in the church that as you grow, there is an increase, no offense, don't be hurt by this, there is an increase of sinners in the church, right? Every new person shows up, that's a new sinner. Welcome, glad you're here. Uh, but there is brokenness in this place. There is brokenness. That is the people of God following a perfect God, but, but we're imperfect people following a perfect God. And, and so we're going to have growing pains. And that is part of it. And so we're going to see a problem arise that, that comes somewhat through the increase in numbers. And it's not just a bunch of people falling through the cracks and saying, oh, it's a, it's a simple numbers game. There's something deeper going on there. But but what we have to be keen to is as we grow and as more people come in here, we have to pay attention. We have to know well the condition of the flock. Because as more people show up, it gets harder to do the simple things you once did. For these people, they used to be 12. They used to be 70 people. Early on in the church, I mean, they explode, they have 3,000 people, but if you remember some of the things, think of the end of Acts 2, that they always gathered together. They were of one heart and soul. Nobody had a need, and everyone was sacrificing and selling the things that they had, and everything was common property to all, a place of love. It was beautiful. You do that with 3,000 people, but then that number doubles, and then it doubles again. And then it doubles again, and now you have 20,000 people. And what's the challenge? To meet the needs of everyone that is there, to love every single person like you did when you had 70 people. There is a challenge with those things, and it's no different here in Acts chapter 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So here's the problem. People are being neglected in the daily serving, the daily distribution of food. Like I said, this is, this is partly a numbers thing, but there's something deeper than just a numbers thing. There's a difference between these people. There are the Hellenistic Jews or the Hellenized Jews against the native Hebrews. So all that means is uh, that these Hellenistic Jews are Jews that did not grow up in Jerusalem. They're not local to Jerusalem. They're not uh, local in this Israel culture. They were spread out all over the world. This often happened because when persecution happened, when wars happened, they were exiled and these these families were scattered really all over. I mean, you're talking Asia, you're talking North, you're talking South, everywhere around Jerusalem. And so their parents or these families, they were Jewish, and yet they grew up surrounded and immersed by Greek culture. This isn't necessarily uncommon to us today. Uh, maybe for you, your family members, your, your mom, your dad, your, your grandparents might be from a different country besides the United States of America. And maybe you were born here, and, and so they, you have somewhat of a different culture at home than the world that is around you. And so if you were to go back uh, to your mother and father's culture, though you are technically that culture, you're showing up and everybody's native, and you're going to be like, whoa, this is different. 
right? This is kind of a culture shock for me, and I don't really fit in with all of the majority that's here. And so this is happening to them, uh, that these people would show up for feasts, right? They're still Jews, and so even though they live in Asia and uh, Troas and Antioch and all these different things, they're still Jews, so they will come down occasionally for feasts that they would have. This would be Pentecost, this is what happened in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost. Uh, they, so many people, they gather and they come from all around. And this is when God then uh, really just moved and began to work through the Spirit, proclaiming the gospel. And what we know from, from Acts and these records, tons and tons of people believed in Jesus and they never went back home. They just left everything wherever it was and they said, this is my home now. These are my people now. I'm part of the church. And so there was an intense amount of poverty that was happening because everybody just left for a journey, uh, for a Pentecost, and then they never went back home. They stayed. And so now this church, the church has this tremendous burden to meet the needs of all these people. That's why they would have daily distributions of food, daily distributions of, of clothing, of whatever they need. That's why if you go back to Ananias and Sapphira and this man named Barnabas, they were selling plots of land and tracts of land in order to meet the needs of people that were there. And that's awesome. That's a beautiful thing until people start to get neglected. So the Hellenistic Jews, they don't, they have a different culture. They have an, a different upbringing. They spoke a different language than Aramaic like a lot of the native Jews did. And so when they showed up, you don't feel like you're in the home team, and the home team, just like you're some visitor. We don't, we don't know why you're here. And so they're all buddy-buddy, and you have this in circle, and then you have the people on the outside. And in this daily distribution of food, a particular group of people, the widows, were being neglected. They were being overlooked as the food was being served. Now, if you know anything about the widows, especially in this day and age, or, or their day and age, rather, they were of all groups, the most vulnerable socially and economically. Women in that day and age had very little power, very little ability to do much of anything. I mean, they just kind of belonged to their father, and then when they got married, they belonged to their husband, and if they were widowed for whatever reason, whether it was death or their husband would just leave, they were of the utmost invulnerability. So these were the neediest people that you can imagine and those social issues in the social view of these widows crept into the church and they were being overlooked. All that to say, these Christians were being overlooked by other Christians because of social differences. Because of social differences, they were being overlooked in the church of God. They didn't fit in because they didn't look like everybody else. They didn't talk like everybody else. Maybe they didn't wear the same type of things. They didn't have the same amount of, of economic uh, wealth and resources. And so they felt like outsiders. And when that happens in the church, to be very clear, that is sin. That is wrong. That's what we call discrimination in prejudice, to make 
these, these differences and distortments based on social things, by physical things, by where you were born, how you were raised, what, what you were raised culturally, that these differences, they disregard the gospel. I want to show you just really quickly Galatians 3, 26 through 29. This is what Paul says. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, or for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. I think the early church needed to be reminded of that. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Paul's saying these social differences shouldn't matter in the church. That shouldn't be a reason for discrimination in the church. Now, I'm not surprised by that out in the world. I'm not surprised that there's discrimination. I'm not uh, surprised that, that there is prejudice. But it stings when it happens in the church. And something has to be done about these things. Because we all know social and cultural issues that happen in the church can do a lot of damage. They can do a lot of damage to, to the reputation of the church, to the people of God, the scarring, the hurt, the pain, uh, all of those things. It is, it is so real. And, and just to be clear, this wasn't a doctrinal issue. There was unity that they had theologically from, from everything that we know. This wasn't a, well, you guys believe this and we believe that, and that's why we're not serving you. It, it's not like, well, we're Christians and you're not Christians, but you're just here for free handouts. Like, it wasn't those things at all. It was, hey, we're all believers. We all believe in Jesus. We are here to worship him, and we are the body of, God, of Christ. But because you were born and raised there, and because you talk like this and maybe you look like that, you're not going to get food. That's wrong. That's sinful. That can't happen. That's not what the church of God is. That is something that we must fight against and push against as much as we possibly can because there is no worse feeling than being neglected amongst the people of God, the place where you should be loved. And this, this feeling isn't uncommon to probably any of us in the room. All of us at some point in time in our lives have felt neglected. We have felt like we are on the outside looking in. Say, like, man, everybody knows each other. Everybody's buddy, buddy, and I just can't get myself into the circle. Like, I just don't feel like I belong. And maybe it's because your personality is different. Maybe because you, you don't, you know, you don't vibe with the things that everybody else vibes with or uh, or. or you grew up in a different culture and you don't understand certain things, or maybe it's the car you drive, the place you live, the clothes that you wear, whatever that may be, the list goes on, but it's all of these things that don't matter. They're, they're social and economic differences, and yet you feel neglected because of them. That hurts. 
There's no worse feeling. This people of God ought to be the one place in the world that you would be loved and welcomed. Jesus puts it this way. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. He said, hey, you want to know how people are followers of Jesus? Like, you want to know that they are followers and learners of him, that they are discipled by Jesus, that this is their stamp? If you have love for one another. If you have love for one another, that's the church. Now, I can make a million clarifications that sometimes love is being honest with people when they're going the wrong way. And, and if there are theological differences and, and there are things of what we believe and where we stand on different things, like, yeah, there's going to be difficulties there without a doubt. And we're going to have to walk through things because we are sinful people. And part of being loving is telling people, you know, where they stand and where the Bible stands. And, and that is part of love. But in so many ways, we, we got to love and welcome people and care for people and go out of our way to make sure people are included, that they are treated the same. So if that's you, if you feel like you're on the outside looking in, maybe that, maybe that has been your experience here. Maybe it has been in the past. Maybe it will be in the future. If that's you, what do you do? How do you respond to that? Because that matters, right? That's probably the biggest thing. What do you do in those moments? Do you just you go to another church? You just hop to the next one and say, man, this one didn't, didn't have this or it did this or whatever it is. So you go to another place. You give up on church altogether. How do you navigate problems that you have with your church? How do you navigate difficulties when, when someone does something or says something that upsets you, that's a believer, that's here? And this goes beyond church problems, right? This is how do we respond when, when people upset us, when people hurt our feelings, when people wrong us? What do we do? What do we do as the people of God? I mean, this is a, this is a life thing. For the rest of your life, you need to know how you should respond. Now, from this passage, Acts 6, all that it tells us is that a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. That there was a complaint that rose up. That The word complaint means grumbling. That there was just this kind of grumbling that was happening. That people were upset from those things. And we don't really know the sequential order of that stuff. So, I, I mean, there's not a lot of application that I can pull from this and say, this is how you should do it or this is how you shouldn't do it. Here with Luke, I, I mean, I love, I love the way that Luke just reports and, and records things. I mean, he just says, this is what happens. And so I'm not saying word for word, everything you read in Acts is what you should pursue exactly. But I also love that, that Luke doesn't leave out... The sucky parts, if I can use that word. Like Luke doesn't leave out the parts that make the church look bad. Because that makes the church look bad, does it not? Like it looks really good in Acts 2. It looks really good in Acts 3. It looks kind of rough and Ananias and Sapphira show up. But then it goes back to awesome again because everybody's sharing the gospel and they're suffering their faith and it's so good. And then Acts 6 and saying, oh, but there was prejudice. There was discrimination in the church. He doesn't just brush it away. He reports it. He says, this happened. And that's so good for us. 
because we can relate to this, right? We can see ourselves in this. Yeah, yeah. There's discrimination. There's, there's pride. There's prejudice in, in the, sorry, pride and prejudice just popped in my head. Uh, like that happens here in the church. So we don't have a lot of application from this, but uh, there, there's a passage where Jesus provides us steps to follow uh, when things happen in our lives. It, it comes from Matthew 18. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read a few things from it and pull some principles out of it. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. It says, if your brother sins, if your brother sins could be against you specifically or you just see your brother that is in sin that is doing something that is contrary to what god has called us as believers to do if you see your brother sinning go and show him his fault in private that's the first step you address the problem with the problem maker we'll put it that way notice that this is a one-to-one thing right where it starts. If someone hurts your feelings, if someone does something wrong, you go to that person and you acknowledge and you address that thing. Say, man, hey, you, you did this and this hurt my feelings and I don't think that was right. Or, hey, man, I, I, I saw you did this, I saw you say this thing or whatever it was. Like, man, I don't, I don't think that was wise. Like, I don't think that was loving. I don't think whatever it was, man, I don't think, and I just... I know this is awkward, but I want to love you well, and and so I want to share this with you. In private, you go to that person and and you acknowledge that thing. I say, man, if we we just did this in this room as a ministry and and more as, as believers, things would be so much better than they are. But I think so often we 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 shy away from these conversations. We just kind of see it, and we're like, ah, dang, you know, like, that stinks. I hope they figure it out. We're like, oh, do they know that's wrong or whatever? You know, like, we just, we never go to that person. Or worse, we talk about it, but never to the person that, that messed up. We talk, to, we talk about it to everybody else. Just, man, I saw this person do this. They said that. Did you hear this? Yeah, they did this, this, and this. You're just gossiping back and forth about all these things, and it just weaves itself through a group of people and everybody but the, the person that needs to hear it more than anybody else, that they're in the wrong, knows nothing about it, but everybody else knows. And then maybe at the end, it's like, oh, yeah, we should pray for him. Like, be praying, yeah, be praying. Someone sins. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, if he hears you and he says, yeah, you're right, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. You have won your brother. Here's one of the things about conflict resolution. The goal is to address the problem and pursue reconciliation. It's to pursue reconciliation. It's to bring unity back. He's saying that's why he said you have won your brother. It's not like, hey, go show them your sin and tell them how much they suck and how bad of a person they are so that they just feel bad. 
says, no, 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 no. The goal is to bring back reconciliation and unity, not further division. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to listen to you. They, 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 oh, words. If they, listen to, if they don't listen to you and they just, there's arguments and all those things, then yeah, there's going to be division, but we're going to get to step two in a second. But the goal is that we would be brought back to unity. And so if someone's doing something wrong, if, you're, if your feelings have been hurt, if someone has wronged you, the goal is to address the problem so that, and bring reconciliation back to your friendship. Reconcile means brought back to peace. It's brought back together. Now, here's the thing in the context of, of, of Acts 6. When this complaint arose with these, the, the widows of these uh, Hellenistic Jews, it could have gone so poorly if they didn't want reconciliation and unity to happen. I mean, they could have grabbed the pitchforks. They could have grabbed all of these things. They could have gone on a slander spree and saying, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and we're going to split churches, and we're going to split all of these things. But their goal was unity and reconciliation. And that is so important in these things. As, as the people of God, we are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not peace fakers. Say, oh, yeah, we're good, we're friends, you know, all these things, but I hold bitterness and grudges, and I'll never forget or forgive that person ever. Like, well, no, no, we're not peace fakers. We're not peace breakers. We make peace with one another. That we would win our brother. But, verse 16, if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So if one-to-one -one doesn't work, then you bring in, hopefully, people that have been around the problem, right? Hopefully, somebody that has also seen it, that they can kind of affirm, like, hey, yeah, we have noticed that this is a problem. Like, this is a thing that has just been going on, and you haven't been really uh, listening, that there isn't any repentance that we have noticed, and you bring two or three more, and you're saying, hey, we love you. We don't want you to go down this road. So we love you, and you have hurt my feelings. But I want, it, I want this to be made right. Like, I want there to be growth. I want this to be out of your life and out from amongst our friendship, and, and so let's pursue reconciliation together. And there's a value to that because it's not just uh, your word against their word. But you bring other people in. You say, hey, what happened? Say, I, I, I saw this and this is what I experienced and these are the things that happened. What, what happened on your end? And as we have these conversation, it's not figuring out who's right. It's not figuring out who's in the right and who's more wrong and sucks and who should feel justified for being a victim or whatever it is. That's not the purpose of these conversations. It's reconciliation. It's unity. I think most of the, of the great reconciliation conversations I have had is often both sides acknowledging things that they've done wrong. And sometimes, if it's a bridge of 100%, right, like one person is walking 90% of that, and they're owning their 90%. And other times, it's saying, hey, and, and I have a 10% in this. I shouldn't have responded that way. 
I shouldn't have gone and did this. I shouldn't have ignored you. I shouldn't have done this. Like, I, I need to own that as well. And that's a hard thing to do. That's a humble thing to do, to own this part of it, because a lot of times we feel very justified in our actions when somebody's done 90% of the problems. But what a great sign of maturity that you say, man, hey, I want to own this. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And so we bring other people into it, and if they still do not listen, 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the church does not mean like you just grab this mic and say, I have a problem with this person. And so they should be banished. Like that's not, that's, all right, that's not really what we're, we're going for. That often means like, let's just go up the chain a little bit, right? So in this context, hopefully you would, you would have a conversation with, with me. Okay, or, or maybe your life group leader that you begin to do these things. You're saying, hey, man, we've had conversations and this person still is like, no, I, I don't think this is wrong. I think this is okay or whatever it is. And you be begin to bring more people uh, to navigate this problem together in order to, to love that person well. That's the hope of this is, as we would do this. And, uh, and I, I realize, I mean, it's hard without examples. And, and so not everything's going to be so cut and dry. It's often like, I, when I was in eighth grade doing algebra or pre-algebra, I don't even remember. Like you're in class and you hear all these things and your professor, or your professor in eighth grade, uh, your teacher is doing like the algebra problems and it's like five plus five equals 10. See, algebra is easy. And then you go home and you're like, there's 15 letters in this equation. And you're like, I don't understand. This, this doesn't make sense. And I, I know that that's what happens in life, right? We read this passage and we're like, okay, just go and, 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 and confront them lovingly and have this conversation with them and say, hey, you've done this wrong and, and, and you shouldn't do this wrong, right? And, and, but it's always, it seems so convoluted and, and difficult to navigate these things. And I think, man, we, we do our best. We do it prayerfully. Uh, loop people in that can be part of the solution, right? But if, there's, if these people aren't part of the solution, stop talking to them about it. Like if they're not actively involved in this thing, then don't just start throwing dirty laundry all over the place. I'm like, yeah, this person, this person said this and this and this, and they did this and this and this. You're like, oh, you, I mean, you barely know, but like maybe you should know. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Keep the circle as small as you can and only widen it as it is needed. Only widen it as it is needed. And, and by the way, as, uh, treat them as, or let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This seems so harsh, but a lot of ways, as we have these conversations, if someone isn't uh, repentant and acknowledging the, the wrong things that they've done and there's a, a universal agreement that these things are wrong, then a lot of times it's because, hey, we're showing you scripture. And we're saying this is how God's people do things. This is where God's people go and how they live. And if you're not willing to, to walk in that, then, then how can we call you a, a brother in Christ? Because you're saying, I don't follow God's word. And so it's hard to, for us to say, let's hold each other to the standard of following Jesus. And then one of our brothers isn't holding to that same standard and disagrees with that standard. Then he's saying, hey, we, we teach them as, as though maybe they aren't saved. And I know that's harsh, but you're still going to treat people with love. And you're still going to share the gospel with them and have gospel conversations with them in the hopes that maybe they would come to know God or, or come to repentance through time. And so I'm not saying like, yeah, you just cut them and you leave them and you never talk to them again. That's not what this is saying. It's saying you love them. 
but maybe you don't assume that they hold the scriptures and follow God the same way that you do because they've shown continually over time and through many conversations that they don't regard the word of God as you do. Again, I know that can be unpacked in a variety of ways, uh, but I, I think it's important because this is a life thing. You're going to have conflict the rest of your life, okay? <laughs> That's unfortunate, but every single person is sinful and broken. And if you try and go through life and all of your relationships and all of your friendships and with your family and with your church, just hoping, expecting that you're never going to get hurt and you're never going to see people do things that they shouldn't do, let me just burst that bubble now. It's not going to happen. You're going to get hurt. People are going to wrong you. People that you love and trust. Your husband someday, your wife someday. It's going to hurt your feelings. You need to know how to resolve those conflicts in a way that is biblical, that honors God and loves people well. And by the way, that's what resolving conflict does. It honors God and it loves people well. As, as we move into conversations with people and you show them their sin, that is loving them well. Saying, hey, there's areas of growth that, that I see in your life. And I want to walk with you through those things to this goal. You're not calling them out and isolating them and saying, get out of here until you get better. You're calling them up to the standard that we all know and follow and believe in and say, let's run here together. I want to help you. That's a beautiful thing that we can do well. But if we choose to, to ignore that problem or ignore that person or we hold bitterness uh, against that person or we talk about it behind their back or, or we try and get revenge and we fight fire with fire, we're not choosing the path of reconciliation. We're choosing the path of division. We've got to be peacemakers. Now, if you're on the other side of that, when someone has a problem with you, when you have done something wrong and someone confronts you, uh, real quickly, acknowledge your wrongdoing. Acknowledge your wrongdoing. You're saying, you're right. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I, I don't mean to hurt your feelings. Actually, don't even say that because you did hurt their feelings and you just need to own up to that, right? You know, like, hey, I, I don't hate you. I just had a poor moment. You know what? I, I, I just, I had a poor moment and I shouldn't have done that. You acknowledge your wrongdoing. This is what confession is in a lot of sense. I mean, what the idea of confession is as we confess things before God, it is acknowledging that we are wrong and God's way is right. We're agreeing with God that what we have done was not what he intended. And so in the same way, when, when we wrong somebody else and they bring that to us, or maybe they don't even bring it to us, when, you've, when you have wronged someone and you know it, go and seek for forgiveness. Acknowledge your wrongdoing. Number two, ask for forgiveness. It's really, really important that we do that. It's a simple phrase, but it's very hard to say in moments. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? Practice that in your life. It sucks saying it to Amy <laughs> because I know I've wronged her. I know I've wronged her. And I need to ask for forgiveness to say, Amy, will you please forgive me? And you know what? Sometimes it's going to feel like 
weird coming out of your mouth. You're like, will you please forgive me? You know, and you're like, this is the worst. Begin to, begin to make that practice in your life. Say, hey, I, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And then finally, establish expectations of moving forward. Right? You establish expectations of how we as friends, how we as a church, whatever it may be, like how do we move forward? If you have a big fight, if, uh, and often frustration is born out of unmet expectations. And expectations aren't met when they're not communicated. That will help you in your marriage. Please hold on to that. Frustration is born when expectations are not met. Example, not reality, even though sometimes now that we have a child, if I get home and everything is just kind of a mess and there's dishes all over the place, there's something inside of me, if I'm just being honest sometimes, that gets a little frustrated, right? Because everything's everywhere. And now I'm like, well, I feel like I have to do this because if I'm going to make any food, like everything's dirty. And yet there is no ever expectation that I set on Amy, nor would I say, hey, when I get home, things need to be clean. Ooh, gross that I would ever say that, right? But and yet inside of me, there's this there's a small expectation that I have carried in moments that I never communicated. And so frustration was born because expectations weren't met and expectations weren't met because expectations were not communicated. And so when those frustration things happen, you begin to have a conversation after you've owned things and saying, hey, I shouldn't have put that expectation on you. I should have communicated to you. I should have talked about it. I, I shouldn't have said this or done this, or I should have done this. Say, okay, now moving forward, how do we, how do, we do this well? How do we do this well together? I think that's such an important part of that conversation because otherwise, if we're just saying, yeah, I, I'm sorry, and you just go on with life, like, how do we know there's going to be a change, right? How do we know there's, that's a genuine, uh, for, uh, like a genuine remorse over the wrongdoing if there's not a real movement towards growth? We don't know. And so we need to set expectations and say, here's our plan moving forward to love each other well, to walk with God in progress. You acknowledge your wrongdoing, you ask for forgiveness, and you establish expectations as you move forward. Here's what they did in Acts chapter 6. So the complaint, uh, it rises up on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, the apostles, they summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So, a lot that we could unpack there, a lot that we could say, especially with some of the, the movements maybe that we have in, in our world. Uh, but, but we as the church, I'll, I'll just say this, and if we want to have more conversations, we absolutely can. Uh, we have to learn to balance how we address social issues in the world in the ministry of, of preaching the gospel. We have to learn to balance those things well. What I would say is that it is not an either-or decision. 
Like if you jump into the world and your only thing is, hey, we're going to preach the gospel and we're just going to preach the gospel and we're going to preach the gospel, but we don't give a rip about anybody and any of the problems that are going in our world and in our community. Like we don't care about homeless. We don't care about hurting. We don't care about injustice. We don't care about any of those things. We're just going to preach the gospel. I'd say you're missing part of this. You're missing part of the church's role. I.e. see Jesus, who was very, very adamant about preaching the gospel, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and so many of the messages. But as he went, and as he went everywhere, he healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He loved the poor, the lame, the beggars. Like that was part of Jesus' work, that there was a restoration process back to God's original intent. And so we have to balance those things that as we preach the gospel and as we go on and saying this is what salvation is, this is sin, this is injustice, this is righteousness and, and what we need in order to be saved, that is an eternal work. But we also do good. And we want to be a blessing to the communities that we are in. And we want to be on the forefront of, of what God intended the world to look like so that we can be the light of the world a city set on a hill that people can look at and say, yeah, that's good. And on the other side of that, that there's, there's, I think, well-meaning people that have gotten uh, really lost in saying we're just about social issues and we're going to do a lot of social reform and we're going to fix a whole lot of things and we're going to move a, a lot of stuff forward in society and, and it's going to be awesome, but, but they completely shy away from any conversation about the gospel about right and wrong, about sin and heaven and eternity and salvation. And it just begins to like, we, we're just good people for the sake of being good people and it begins to water down the power of the gospel. And so I'm not saying it's an either or, though many people have gotten into that fight, I'm saying it's a both and, that that's what we gotta do as the church. And so all the good we do, all of the, the pushing we do to bless the community, to be as God intended it to be, we do so for the purpose of the gospel being proclaimed. Very practically, you can jump in with Habitat for Humanity, which is an awesome ministry that people at our church do, and you can build a lot of houses and do a lot of things, but if you're not having active conversations about the gospel, then you have done a lot of earthly good, but eternally those people still do not know God. And so we want to be a great example for the purpose of sharing the gospel. And all of the good that we do on this earth is an evidence of a changed heart. At the end of the day, if you want to change society, if you want society to be like the kingdom of God in heaven, like, like Jesus' prayer, it's going to come through changed people. If you want to change society, then people have to be changed from death to life that were enemies of God that are now saved and reconciled into a relationship with him. Because you can try and fix people up and fix all the things up in the world, but if, if the spirit of God is not in them, because the gospel was not preached, then there's no genuine change and there's no eternal impact. So we balance both of those things and it's awesome because the 12, they realize that. He says, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. I mean, you hear that initially and you're like, those jerks, <laughs> you know, like they don't care about us. And he says, but, but, but here's what we are gonna do. 
Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. This is the beauty of the body of Christ. That we all have a role, we all have a part to play in this thing. And and if you read through these guys, verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. Which is awesome because these Hellenistic Jews, these widows, all the people that had a problem, what was their goal? Reconciliation and unity. They said, yes, we agree, this is good, let's stay together, let's continue to move. We want the gospel to go out, we want the gospel to be preached, we want the word, we want prayer, we want all of those things. And we can balance that when the whole body is at work doing what the body can do. And so they raise up seven men. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of Holy Spirit. This is his first introduction. If you read Acts 7 later, you're going to see that this man was incredible. And this moment he had to serve for however long this might have been uh, was a huge catapult for him into a, well, I say a lifetime of ministry. It was more like three months, but it was his lifetime because he got stoned for preaching the gospel. So they raised up Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon. Timon and Pumbaa, right? Uh, Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. A lot of these names, some of these names are Greek names. They're Greek names. Nicholas from Antioch. This was not a Jew. Some of these were Hellenistic Jews. You're like, why does that matter? Why are you like excited about that? Because these people that had a problem with what was happening in the church didn't just sit on the sideline booing all the people in the game. They got off the bleachers and they said, we're going to get in the game and we're going to be a part of the solution. That's what we've got to be as the church. That's what we've got to do. Like, Don't just be on the sideline and say, man, that church sucks because they don't love people well. They're, they're exclusive. They don't care about people. They don't, they don't meet people and they, they're not... They're not good at this or that or whatever. And so I, I leave and I'm going to go find another place that will scratch the itch. And say, hey, hey, I've noticed this problem here and, and I want to be a part of the solution. How can I help? How can I jump in the game and make sure people are loved? How can I make sure that every need is met? So these people, they said, yeah, we're about it. And, and as verse 7 or verse 6, rather. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. There's nothing magical or mystical about laying hands. This is kind of like the signet ring of a king before a letter goes out. It's the stamp of approval. They're saying, yes, we all agree these men are fit for this job. They are great. They are about it. Their intention is good. We love it. Let them fill this role. Verse 7, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. See, it's important that, that we, we address the problems that are in the church, the social issues in the church. And, 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 and so if very real application, if you are in here and you're like, hey, I have a problem with some of these things. And please have conversations. Please pray. Please pray for the people that, that you need to have conversations with. Please pray as, as you do all these things because your goal ought to be and should be reconciliation, unity, and growth in the people and in the church. And so if you have a problem with some of the ways that we do things or the way that things happen here or your experience here, man, I, I hope your goal is unity and reconciliation 
and growth here. And if it's not those things and you're just kind of looking for the perfect place, then man, I just want to challenge you and why you are here. Because the church for probably decades, centuries, I would say, one of the biggest problems that we have is the church has just become a place to attend. It's just getting butts in seats on a Sunday morning to listen to all the professionals uh, teach about God, and then I go home and I do my thing, and then I come back the next Sunday, and it's just another thing we do. It's just an attendance thing. God is looking for participants. God is looking for people to jump in, to be a part of what he is doing. And so some of the teams that we have, like our student leadership teams, uh, that, I mean, we have a, a connect crew for a, a reason. We hope that every single person in this room would be connected, that they would belong here, that they would be known here. And we hope to continue to grow and to do better at that because we know not everybody has the perfect experience and some people feel neglected and that sucks. I don't want that to be the case. But if we don't know, we don't know, right? If, if, if people just kind of leave and wander off and say, ah, it wasn't a good experience and we don't know those things and, and people that care enough about us to say, hey, there's growth here that can happen and I want to be a part of it. And that's such a blessing to us. If you come genuinely and say, hey, I want to help. I want to be a part of this team. So every person gets connected. I want to be a part of our, of our media team. I want to be a part of this, this team that sets the platform for what we do so that things run smoothly, so that I'm not cutting in and out all the time and you're distracted by all the stuff going on, that that's a platform for the gospel to be preached. These men that, that served tables, you say, well, that's not a really glamorous job. That, that was huge for the church. Because if the church was neglecting those people, then it's not what it said it was and it's not what it should be. We want the church to be what it should be, and so we need the whole body to be a part of what God's doing. You might not have a gift that just says, get me up on stage, I'm the life of the party, I want to talk and I want to say all these things, that's okay. Everybody has different roles and different gifts in the body of Christ. That's why it's a body. So my encouragement to you is, man, find, find what you love. What are you gifted in? It's often the things that, that you enjoy doing and, and you're pretty skilled at. It comes easy to you. So find what those things are. Talk to other people around you. The way that these seven were raised up, it wasn't the apostles. It was the rest of the congregation. It was people that they noticed. And how incredible that must be for these seven when somebody right next to them says, hey, I think you'd be great at that. Hey, I think you should jump in. I think you should serve. I, I see God working in your life, and I want you to know. And I think you should consider jumping in. I, I think you should be one of the people that are, that are here on the front lines serving. I mean, how empowered do those people feel when, when, when really they're recognized for what God's doing in their life? And there's a whole lot I know I just said, and we went a million directions. Um, but as we talk about conflict and difficulties and complaints and, and problems in the church and, and how do we reconcile with one another as, as I just close this. Let me just say, the, the gospel gives us hope. The gospel gives us hope to do this well. No, no, no. The gospel gives us hope to do this at all. Like for us to be a place of forgiveness 
for us to be able to acknowledge problems that we have with one another, to point out and confront one another, saying, hey, these are areas of growth that I see in your life. The gospel is what gives us hope to propel us into that because it gives us an an avenue for forgiveness. An avenue for forgiveness, for growth, for reconciliation to happen. Because here's the deal. Here's, Here's the thing that propels us and makes this possible. Every single one of us in this room has been extended grace from the Father. You are able to extend forgiveness to somebody else because you know what it's like to be forgiven. You know what it's like to be wrong, to do wrong things, to not deserve love, to not deserve acceptance, to not deserve forgiveness because we were enemies of God. We were rebelling against him. We wanted nothing to do with him. And yet God sent his son to sacrifice his life on the cross so that we can be reconciled to the Father. That's love. That's our example. And so we can forgive others because we've been forgiven much ourselves. The gospel gives us hope. The gospel gives us legs to run on. We're not going to do this perfectly. But I, I just... It'd be a miss if we just didn't try, if we didn't move in this direction and do our best to, to be people that reconcile, that love others well, that honor God and love others well by the way that we resolve conflict, talk through things, and, and just do things as a family because that's what we are. And in all of those things, it is because of the gospel and for the sake of the gospel that we would proclaim it everywhere we go with whoever we're around. Because that's where the growth is. That's where life is. That's where purpose is in the gospel. Let me pray. Father, how great it is to see examples of the church being the church of men and women stepping up to fill the gaps, to fit needs uh, that, were, that were happening in the church. God, we know all too well that this is a room of broken, sinful people that mess up daily. We do things that we shouldn't do. We say things that we shouldn't say. And yet your grace is lavished on us. It overflows. It is an infinite, abundant supply that you pour out on us. And we are so undeserving of that. And yet you give and you give and you give. You love and you love and you love. You forgive us. How great a grace that we are unworthy of. And God, in that grace that we walk in and we celebrate and we sing about, God, would you help us? Would you give us the strength and, and, and the courage to extend that same grace to others? To acknowledge brokenness, to reach out to friends that need reaching out to, to love them enough 
to tell them hard things because we need it, Lord. We can't do this life alone. We can't, we can't do this thing alone, Lord. This ministry doesn't move just by one person, by me in the slightest, Lord. It's got to be all of us together with one heart, with one soul. So God, would you help us fix our eyes on you, the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. What you started in us, you will bring to completion. Lord, thank you for that truth. As we know that, God, would we, would we be continually used in one another's lives? Would you use us? Well, we need you. We're thankful for you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand to worship.